I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. God, our Father, God of mercy and grace, Lord of the new covenant, we call upon you today to help us to see the beauty and majesty and perfection of Christ's work in in our text. Help us to quieten our hearts and minds from the cares that we bring in from the week and to receive the renewing news of the gospel this Lord's Day. So do this for your glory and for the edification of the saints. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was at university, I had a friend who was from a very wealthy family. Uh, At this stage, he was already an adult in the sense that he was in his 20s. But there was something somewhat childlike about him. And that was... He was not free to control his finances. He had a board of trustees that oversaw his inheritance trust, and he would only be given full access to it at the age of 30, the date that the benefactor of the trust had determined. In the future, he would be massively wealthy and free, but in the present, he was a bit more like me, depending on others financially and living from month to month. Well, this is the very kind of idea that Paul uses in this text in a way that would give us further insight into what it meant to be under the Mosaic law for Israel, and then to explain how Christ's redemption changes our legal status from slaves to adopted sons who are fully mature heirs. In Galatians, up to this point, up to this passage, Paul's already asserted that Any person from anywhere in the world, no matter what their uh, nationality is, no matter their uh, economic status, no matter their gender, whatever it is, whoever is in Christ, whoever looks to faith, to Christ through faith, is actually a son of Abraham, a true son of Abraham. Now, people may ethnically, as the Jews were, be children of Abraham, but now Paul expands it to say anybody who believes in Christ is truly a son of Abraham. So now what Paul's going to do is develop this idea and teach us how God takes a sinful people and turns them into beloved sons and daughters. So this text is about one of the great benefits of Christ's saving work, namely our adoption. And Paul begins this process by contrasting what it means to be an heir with what it means to live life as a slave. And so he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. 
but instead he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So growing, tacking on to the imagery that he's used in, in chapter 3 of the law being a, a guardian until Christ came, he's developing this idea of an overseer or a, a, a taskmaster, schoolmaster. And Paul explains to them that as long as an heir is a child, he's no different from a slave. So even though this young person may be the heir of a massive empire, until the date of expiry of his guardianship, he's going to be under the control of others. So in that way, he's just like a slave. Until the coming of age. Now, Paul here is not referring to Israel as a literal child, but he's rather saying that those who are under the law are those who have not yet come of age. Now, Paul has defined earlier in Galatians that the coming of age is really the point in time where Christ arrives, where the object of Israel's faith is, re- is revealed to them fully. Not in types and shadows as under the Old Covenant, but they can now see the face of their promised Redeemer. So Paul is talking big picture here. He's talking the relationship of the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. This is biblical theology at its best pedigree. Israel's status under Moses was like a child heir. Heir of the promises, yes, but they were treated as slaves. So that's why Paul says in verse 3, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And what Paul's getting at there is to say that in its infancy, Israel was enslaved, like a slave, to the elementary principles of the world. Now that's a strange phrase, and Paul uses it several times. So let's have a look at what that means. From a philosophical standpoint in in Greek philosophy, this can refer mainly to what the world is made up of, at least what they thought the world was made up of, the the universe, fire, water, um, earth, and air, really. That's the the one sense. Uh, Paul, when he writes to the Colossians, He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So here it refers to a human traditions in religion. In other parts of scripture, we see that stokia, which is the elementary principles, is used to refer as basic principles about what God has taught. So the the preacher to the Hebrews says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of the oracles of God. So what does Paul mean here in Galatians then? Well, it takes some elements of a couple of those definitions, not so much the Greek philosophical one, but rather Paul is talking about the Mosaic Covenant. Note the analogy that Paul used earlier in Galatians 3 when he said, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, 
the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we may be justified by faith. So the elementary principles are the precepts, the teachings, the law of the Mosaic Covenant as a means by which Israel was supposed to be blessed if they obeyed and cursed if they disobeyed. So that's the one sense. But the other should be, what about the Gentiles? Because that's Israel. But what about the Gentiles? For Gentiles, not under the Mosaic Covenant, who then later turned to faith in Christ, Paul's meaning of elementary principles has a relationship to the pagan idolatry in the world. It would be a reminder to those hearing it that they were slaves to the, the worldly religions, the pagan religions, and the teachings of man. But now, in contrast, in Christ, they would be free. Now, this would have been shocking for Paul's audience to hear. Think about what the implication of this is. How can the Mosaic law, which is holy and good, given to them by God at Sinai, also be associated with the principles of pagan religions in the world? Our instinct may be to recoil from that and say, may it never be. But this is an important question, and one we'll see later has a bearing on how it's possible that both Israel and Gentiles can be saved. But the reason that there is some degree of comparability between the Mosaic law and every pagan religion in history is because of the image of God and the fall of Adam. What's meant by that is the curse that results from Adam's sin plunging humanity into a desperate bondage of slavery to sin results in God's law, which as Paul writes elsewhere, is written on our heart, right? Because we are made in the image of God. And therefore, our hearts condemn us. That's Paul's argument when he writes to the Romans, that even those who have not heard the law from Sinai are guilty because their own consciences testify to their sin. See, the nature that pervades every pagan religion is a works righteousness. That we must obtain righteousness by what we do. And we saw that idea when we had a look a few weeks ago at the text on, in Micah 5. Santa's religion of presents for good children and coal for bad children is the post-Adam default. That is how all pagans live. But that was also included in the Mosaic law to teach Israel something that they couldn't obey and that they needed someone to obey on their behalf. So what Paul is doing here then is characterizing their lives as under a overseer or manager who controls them. And that is a life of slavery, whether you're under the Mosaic law or whether you're a pagan under a natural law. So Paul wrote in Galatians 3.22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. 
Ultimately, what we're supposed to take from that is, and with this analogy, Israel was under the curse of the law. And they were trapped in it because they sinned and they were unable to be righteous as a result. Israel was in desperate need as if they were imprisoned under sin because they could not obtain righteousness, the righteousness that is needed to be blessed by God. But as Paul regularly reminds his his readers, God did not abandon Israel in their state of hopelessness. Because, verse 4 to 5 of our text reads, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So the fullness of time is the date spoken of in verse 2. The date set by God the Father, where the heir matures and receives his due. In other words, God sent his son, Jesus, in the fullness of time. From the beginning of redemptive history, God's people have awaited the advent of Christ. And we can see the lineage of that all the way back through different aspects of Israel's history. Those who had hoped, including Eve, hoping that uh, Cain would be some kind of redeemer, but instead he proved to be a murderer. Nevertheless, God's people continued to hope, to wait on Christ through Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and so on. They looked, as the writer to the Hebrews tells us, with hope to a new day in which a redeemer would be sent, in which a prophet like Moses, as we looked at several weeks ago, a prophet like Moses would be sent. Yet they were disappointed at every end and ultimately were in slavery in Egypt and then repeatedly in exile for their sins. But yet a remnant of this hope never went away. Instead, in the fullness of time, God sent his son. As we see in Mark chapter 1, John the Baptist announced, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So in the fullness of time, God did send his son. But Paul tells us two things about the way in which God sent his son. That he was born of woman and born under the law. Now, these are not incidental remarks, just side comments. They are central to the gospel. Jesus had to be born of a woman in order to be a redeemer. Why? Well, only a man could suffer for the sins that mankind had committed. And only a man could obtain for mankind the righteousness that is required for eternal life. And heaven. 
So the second point about being under the law then relates to this statement that he is, he is born of a woman in order to be born under the law for the redemption of God's people. Now earlier I mentioned that it would be important to understand this connection between the Mosaic law and pagan religion, and here we see it. If Christ were born under the law only in the sense of the Mosaic covenant, then how is it that Gentiles would be saved? See, you and I were not born under the Mosaic covenant because it expired at the death of Christ. Well, the reason is because Christ being born under the law, under the Mosaic law, ultimately points to being born under the covenant of works, the covenant that God made with Adam when he created him. God required of Adam obedience in order to bless him with eternal life and glorification. And at the same time, promised the curse of death should Adam disobey. So this is ultimately what the Mosaic law points to for Israel, the reality of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Yet, just like their father Adam, Israel was unable to fulfill this law. And so it was to them a curse. As we've seen regularly in various texts, Israel again and again was exiled, given the covenant curse by God as they failed to obey his law. And so Jesus' birth then is the fulfillment of Israel's hope, a redeemer, a second Adam, to connect them to a new father. And Jesus, if you think about it, the What is so amazing about the statement that he was born under the law is that he is above the law because he is the one who gave the law. He is the law giver. And yet he yoked himself under the law in humility in order to save his people. Though he was Lord of all, he became slave of all. And that was his mission. As Paul phrases it in verse 5, that he came to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Ultimately, Jesus came to fulfill each requirement that God had given in the law on behalf of a sinful and rebellious people. In the birth narrative, when Luke talks of this, he says, that Jesus was taken to the temple and dedicated according to the law of Moses. And Paul has already alluded to this whole idea in chapter 3 when he said, Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by means of becoming a curse for us. So as Christ obeys the law, this results in our adoption as those who look to him by faith. And here's a beautiful reality that we must not miss, a great kind of exchange. Christ is born of a woman under the law, becoming a slave like us 
so that we might become a son like him. He voluntarily enters into slavery and curse so that we may enter into sonship and blessing. Isn't that incredible? That is the nature of his redemptive work. That in the carnation, he, tr- he trades the privileges of sonship, its glory, freedom, and inheritance for something like slavery with its curses and humiliation. All to free you and me. So as Christ enters into our slavery, we are indeed delivered from it, redeemed from it, to receive adoption as sons. And all who trust in Christ will receive this incredible benefit. Yet the benefits do not end there. In addition to our redemption and our right then to become sons and heirs, in the same way as the Father sent the Son, He now too sends the Spirit of His Son, the Holy Spirit. So we shouldn't miss, this is a wonderful Trinitarian text that speaks to us uh, to the Trinitarian nature of salvation. The the Father promises to give a, a people to the Son in return for His obedience as mediator and Savior. And the Spirit applies the benefits of Christ to God's people. And we know that Christ's work is therefore efficacious, that it will benefit us because it was accepted by the Father. And we know that, God's, that Christ's work was accepted by the Father because he raised Jesus from the dead and he received him into heaven where he sits in heavenly session. And he now continues the work of Christ by the Spirit of Christ in us. As Paul says in verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. What a great gift. So if you have Christ, Paul's saying, you have the Spirit. Now, given our uh, Christian context here in South Africa, you may have heard or been taught and maybe previously believed, or maybe presently believed, that being born again is one thing, but then you also need to be filled with the Spirit. Now, I want to encourage you that clearly this is not true. There is no Christian without the Holy Spirit, and no one without the Spirit can be a Christian. This is part of the assurance that is our right as adopted sons, knowing that we are filled with God's Spirit. And if we are adopted as God's sons, then we no longer know God as a judge, but as our Heavenly Father. And if we know God as Father, what is the implication? Well, we can cry out to Him in our every need. Another comment worth making here is that when uh, we see Abba, Father, these words, 
Some have tried to imply that the main thrust of those words is uh, intimacy, almost like colloquially uh, calling God dad or daddy. Now, that's not true. It's not the picture here is not of a small child in the lap of their father uttering dada, although it is certainly true of us that we can crawl into God's lap as a father and make our needs known to him. The point here is that this term indicates a change in the status of God's people from slaves to sons, because only sons can address God with the title father. That's the emphasis. And this is further evidence that it is not actually so much us who's doing the crying, but Paul says it is the Spirit of God doing this crying. So the Spirit, the Spirit witnesses to the Father of the reality of our adoption as sons, crying out, Abba, Father, these are your children. And for that reason, the Spirit is also called the Spirit of Adoption. And he is the one who, from our hearts, certifies that we belong to God and that we can call upon his name as our God and Father. Now, all of this is only possible because a cry, Abba, Father, was issued by the Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before his crucifixion. He cried out, Abba, Father, take this cup from me. But he submitted to God's will to drink this cup of wrath. So now the Spirit's cry, in echoing that, says, You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. This cry of the Spirit is proof to us that Jesus' saving work has been applied to us. And that the Spirit, in taking up residence in our hearts, certifies to us that we are children of God. Hence, he's called the spirit of adoption. As the Westminster Confession of Faith 12.1 puts it, all, that the, all those that are justified, God vouchsafes, meaning he certifies and keeps, in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and to inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Now, Paul, when he wrote this letter to the Galatians, is imploring them not to go back to the law. And so, for us, we too must not become enslaved again to the elementary principles of earthly, worldly religions. Instead, we must live in our adoptive freedom as sons and heirs who have the Spirit crying out, Abba, Father. Now, at times, who knows what kind of week we've had individually, but at times, we may be tempted to think, well, the Lord's Day is approaching. I better clean up my act before I show up in church. But really, that is not so much living as a son, but rejecting sonship. 
Because what God has told us to do instead is to confess your sins and know that you are forgiven as you have done today. The remedy for our sins is never ourselves and our works. It is always Christ who is the remedy. And we are to look to him by faith. It is because of the strength and the perfection of Christ that faith always gets the victory. The elementary principles of religion is the yoke of death, the curse of the law. But faith in Christ is life and adoption and freedom. So therefore, we must seek life in Christ by trusting what he has done on our behalf as one born of woman, born under the law, whose perfect righteousness is now applied to us by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith. And at the same time, we also shouldn't forget our privileges to call on God as beloved children. As Paul wrote to the Romans, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So when you are in times of trouble, remember this short prayer, Abba, Father. So let us go forth in full assurance of the glorious redemptive work of Jesus Christ, sealed to us by the Holy Spirit and praising our Heavenly Father for the gift of grace. Amen.